I'll be reading from the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theopolis, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, and as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by him in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right, thank you, Chad. <clears throat> so um, that's Chad D. Miguel, the guy that just read the scripture for us. He's one of the uh, leaders and organizers behind that event that we just talked about uh, on Saturday, January 28th, uh, the Marketplace and the Gospel. So if you happen to see him after service, you have some questions about that, you can always uh, snag him and ask him a little bit more about that. I've been working with him and Caitlin and, and Eric on getting this thing ready to go. At any rate, before we get into the sermon, we're in Acts today, but before we do that, uh, we're very excited to introduce a new full-time pastor here at Redemption Arcadia. He's going to be starting uh, on the 16th of January, but we want to introduce him and his family today. So if they'd come up, Tyler and Helena James. <clears throat> and their children, Eleanor and Roosevelt. I'm sorry. Almost. Ro Roland Roosevelt. <laughs> they had that please, kind of please, presidential thing going on. Yeah, yeah so. okay. Please pray for me. I have had a rough morning. I have said some really bad stuff that will probably end up on YouTube at some point. Yeah. Send me a anyway, link. Somebody. All right, so this is Tyler. He's our new family pastor. So some of you may be going, all right, so what does a family pastor do? Well, here you go. If you have anyone in your family that's bothering you, contact Tyler and he'll fix it. Right? Isn't that kind yeah. of how it goes? That's yeah. the one, yeah. So Tyler has experience with children's ministry. He's going to be working with Tammy, our, our children's director. He has a lot of experience with student ministry. Uh, so he's going to be working with the Dufresnes on that as well. Uh, he's also going to be working with families. One of his great giftings is counseling and shepherding. So that's going to be really helpful as well. He has a passion for gospel-centered marriages, which is really helpful, and how that relates and translates to the entire uh, family. He'll, he'll probably help Cody and I uh, some with uh, Redemption Communities. Um, he'll be involved with volunteers, as all of us are as well. Uh, but it, you'll get to know more and more. He's going to be starting... Um, uh, because next Sunday is a little bit of a weird Sunday, we thought we'd introduce him today. His official start date is actually Martin Luther King Day, Monday the 16th. I think everybody should start uh, their employment on a day off. Amen? And, that, and that's pretty cool, isn't it? Okay. So anyway, Tyler, tell us about your journey, kind of your circular journey back into redemption. Tell us a little yeah, bit Yeah, so that. we started back in the Praxis days in Tempe. Uh, that's where I met Helena, my wife, and uh, so... 
We started there, we're a part of Redemption Tempe for a long time, got to know Vince Garvey really well. We were eventually sent up as part of that Redemption Flagstaff planting team. Actually, their first service was in our apartment together, which was pretty funny. Uh, that's super small. but So we did that for a while, and then God called us out to Los Angeles, which is where we've been for the last four years, at a church called Reality LA. I've been operating as a kids and youth director there, so really involved with kids and youth ministry and family ministry over there. We loved our time over there, and now we're back here as of four weeks ago, right before Christmas. Our house is still a mess, but but we'll get through it. So we're really familiar with Redemption Church. We love what God's doing through there and through Arcadia. You guys are amazing. So we're really humbled and thankful to be a part of this church, and thank you guys for welcoming us. Yeah. I think it's interesting how small, in some respects, the Christian community really is. Some of you remember a guy named Sean Johnson, right? Okay, so he worked with Sean for the last three years, yeah. essentially, yeah. at Reality LA. So, and, and Sean said... Sean says he's, he comes very highly recommended. I don't know if he's just trying to get rid of you or, or we'll what, see. but we'll he, he, he really had nothing but good things to say about Tyler. Uh, Tyler's got his roots in Praxis and Redemption, so we're excited about that. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about your family. Yeah, so this is my wife, Helena. We've been married coming up on five years here. And this little one running around, this is Eleanor. She's four. And this guy is Roland, who's two and a half. And where are you guys living right now? What, what part of town are you living We're right nearby now? in South Scottsdale off of, I mean, she knows this, Hayden and Thomas. Hayden yeah. and Thomas, great. So close. So that's good. Yeah. So we're going to pray for them right now. And if there are any staff members in here or elders or deacons, staff members, elders, deacons, if you would come up also and pray with us. Now, anybody who would like to be on our staff, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> All right, let's uh, pray for these guys. Uh, Lord God, we are grateful for how you provide for us. Uh, you also protect us, but it's amazing when your provision comes through. Um, uh, we've known for a while that uh, this might be a reality, uh, taking on this new property uh, on Camelback, that, that we would have a, a, a really big need for somebody who is well-versed in in family ministries, and it was just amazing how you provided uh, for us right at the right time. Uh, and, and so we're, we're excited uh, for Tyler and Helena and their kids, and, we're, and, and uh, we just pray your blessings on them. Uh, we know that ministry is challenging and tough, but it's also fruitful and exhilarating and, and rewarding, and that's our prayer for Tyler and Helena, that this would be a fruitful ministry, that it would be something that that even in the midst of, of the hard stuff, it would be very rewarding uh, to them. We pray your, your power through the Holy Spirit in and through them, uh, that they would be lavished and overwhelmed, that you would pour out your spirit on them so that they can do their work with a sense of urgency, but with a heart at rest, God. That's our prayer for them, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So welcome Tyler and Helena Thank again. Thank please. Thanks, man. All right, very excited about that. So um, we are uh, starting Acts officially as a church today. All of the congregations are starting Acts today. Uh, if you weren't here last week, um, you might, and you hadn't 
done this yet, you might want to go on and listen to the podcast from last week, because what I did last week was I took that one Sunday where we didn't have anything scheduled, and I just used it as, as an introduction in the book of Acts. So all of the background stuff, all of the historical stuff, all the contextual stuff, all the relational things, uh, it, I think it would be helpful for you to be able to listen to that as we go through this, because we're going to dive right in to verses 1 through uh, 11 today. Uh, we're going to take 10 months to go through the book of Acts, narrative by uh, narrative. And, and the book of Acts, um, I, I think one of the challenges with the book of Acts is that academically this is a fascinating book because it's a history book. And I don't want it to just be academic for us, um, but I want us to really press into the application that this book has, not only for the disciples then, but also for the disciples today, for the church today. And so um, I'm constantly going to be pressing into that. It's, it's academically fascinating. I think it's applicationally rich. We will find great encouragement uh, by going through um, this book of Acts. Uh, I'll tell you, speaking of encouragement, I, a little story from this morning. Um, I, I just... I tell you, there's public speaking, and then there's proclaiming the Word of God and teaching the Word of God. And I will tell you that, that teaching the Word of God and proclaiming the Word of God, there, there is a little bit of an extra, I don't know, sense of accountability and responsibility in that. I feel the weight of that. And this morning, I was especially feeling it because we're starting a new book and just feeling the weight of, 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 of teaching God's Word. And so... I text my mentor, Tom Schrader. Many of you know Tom. I've known him for the last 26 or 27 years. He's been uh, just terrific uh, help to me. And, and so I text him this morning, and, and I said, man, I, I am so surprised how after 20 years of regular Sunday morning proclamation of God's word, it still freaks me out that I do this. And he texts me back, and he said, imagine the mindset of those people who have been listening to you for 20 years. <laughs> So very encouraging this morning from my mentor, Tom uh, Schrader. Uh, today's big idea is this. True power comes from God and God alone. We're really going to uh, press into that uh, during this message. Uh, and what I want to do is just kind of go through the passage uh, bit by bit and just um, kind of talk about uh, the application technically, or the, the passage technically for a minute, and then really jump into application as we uh, go along this morning. So let's read those first three verses again that Chad read us this morning. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. A little bit about Luke. I didn't mention this last week. Uh, Luke historically is known as a medical doctor. He was a first century medical doctor and a disciple, an apostle of Jesus. Now, I will tell you, I, I've always been interested but haven't really found out how did they measure whether or not somebody could be a medical doctor in the first century. I imagine it's a little bit more stringent in the 21st century. I hope it is, at least. Anyway, I don't know what qualifies you to be a medical doctor, but he was. But he was also known historically as a historian, as, as somebody who really was concerned about detail and fact and was very ordered in the way he put things uh, together. And, and it's interesting because he's writing to this guy named Theophilus. The, the name Theophilus means lover of God, but there's been some 
question over the years about whether there was an actual Theophilus, a person named Theophilus, or if Theophilus was really a metaphor for anybody who believed in Christ. Um, One of the things that you do when you're doing textual criticism is you ask questions of the text or you pose it theories uh, about the text, and then you try to knock those theories down. And, And I would say that Theophilus is probably a real person because when he addresses Theophilus in his first book, the Gospel of Luke, he describes Theophilus as most excellent Theophilus. Uh, An ancient writer is not going to use a personal description of somebody if he's just using that as a metaphor for a bigger group of people. So I think there's a guy named Theophilus that he was writing both the gospel and the book of Acts to. And some people say, well, that doesn't uh, let Luke understand that his his letters were going to be used by the church for centuries and centuries to come. Well, maybe he didn't know. The Holy Spirit gave him the words to write the gospel and the book of Acts, but, but maybe he didn't know that they was, these books were going to be used 2,100 years ago in the church. The, the, the Spirit decided to keep that from him. He's just writing a letter to his friend to be able to um, encourage him. And he says, uh, in the beginning of Acts, he says, I've already written to you about and dealt with all of this other stuff. What does that mean? Well, it's what he wrote about in the gospel. Here's how he starts the gospel. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word uh, have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." So Luke is a good communicator. He says, here's what I'm going to do in this, in this document. I'm going to tell you about everything that happened in the ministry of Jesus. And now he's telling us at the beginning of, of Acts, here's everything that happened since his ascension, since he was taken up into heaven. So it's a smooth transition from Luke volume 1 to Luke volume 2. And he talks about these commands of Jesus. What, what were those? Well, it was essentially everything that he taught. So it's the Sermon on the Mount, which we went through last fall. It's all of his parables. It's his teaching on the kingdom of God and on money and on hell and on judgment and on love, all of that stuff. And then after the cross, he says that Jesus proved that he was alive, that he had been raised from the dead by showing himself to many and by speaking even more about the kingdom of God. He continues to teach about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a big deal for Jesus because really we find the kingdom of God in the person of Christ. It's really not a place, but rather it's the person of Jesus and how he transforms us by the power of his spirit to live a life that God calls us to, a gospel-centered life, a life that reflects the good news of Jesus. We talked a lot about this last fall when we went through the Sermon on the Mount. We talked about how there's a kingdom politic that Jesus was talking about, a kingdom of God politic, and then there was a world politic or a kingdom of the world politic. There's a a way that we live in the kingdom of God and there's a way that we live according to the world standards, and sometimes those two things overlap, but, but they aren't the same. They really aren't the same. It's way different to live as a person in the kingdom of God than it is as a person who's living in the kingdom of the world. And that word politic... I know that bothers some of us. 
I, I mean, talk, you, know, you just bring up politics and everybody freaks out, I'm telling you. And I know that's hard for some people, but what's interesting about that word is the English word politic comes from the ancient Greek word that is in the Bible that literally means how a person lives as a citizen in their community. It's the word politic. It's the Greek word politic, how we live as a citizen in our community. And there's one way to live in the kingdom of God, and there's one way to live in the kingdom of the world, and the two do overlap sometimes, but they are also still very different. And so he had to talk to the disciples about this uh, because really the disciples wanted to live in the kingdom of the world and by that ethic and still have the salvation of God. Jesus' followers, even at this point in the story, were still much more concerned about the kingdom of Israel and their power and status in Israel and about their own personal kingdom than the kingdom of God. And so Jesus has to keep teaching about this, just like to us. We know Christ, most of us do, and yet we still wrestle with this. One of the biggest challenges that we have as believers in Christ, as followers of Christ, as, as people who are a part of God's people and a part of his kingdom, one of the big, biggest challenges is still, what are we going to focus on? Are we going to focus on the things that get us approval from man, from other people? Or are we going to focus on the things that God is calling us to by the power of his Holy Spirit and the good news of Jesus Christ? And those are often two very different things. We talked about this with Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary had found favor with God, and yet that favor with God was decidedly different than any favor from man that she might get. She was rejected and ridiculed by man, even though she had found favor with God. The two don't usually go together, and so that's a very difficult thing for us to have to wrestle with, even as believers, and we acknowledge that. I love this definition of the kingdom of God from John Polhill. I think he gets right at the heart of the matter. He writes that the kingdom of God is not an earthly, political, or military kingdom, nor is it a kingdom of worldly pleasures and comforts. But it is the present spiritually directed reign of God gradually transforming individual lives and entire cultures through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. That's the kingdom of God and that's what we're going to be looking at all throughout the book of Acts. Now what are the proofs by which Jesus, uh, we know that Jesus was raised? So he mentions this proofs thing that he was raised from the dead. Well, we know he had a physical body. He was seen by more than 500 people. He had a physical body. He also spoke and taught. That was a proof. He also was continuing to do signs and miracles and pointing to the things of God in that way. And then here's a big one that a lot of people uh, either pass by or forget about or minimize. But this is actually a big one. He ate food. He ate food. Listen, apparitions do not eat. They don't eat. He ate food. There were people who doubted his physical bodily resurrection, but the fact that he ate was part of what convinced them. The fact that he ate was a big deal. And by the way, it's not just the physical act of eating. It's also the act of presence when you're eating with somebody. Now, I think everybody in this room understands 
that when we break bread with somebody, when we eat with somebody, it is a, in a sense, it is an act of intimacy to eat with somebody. You don't just eat with anybody. In fact, if you are like at a church picnic next Sunday, Sunday and you're eating with people you don't know, it's a little bit awkward to eat in front of people you don't know and that you don't have a relationship with. Eating with somebody or maybe going to get coffee with them is actually an act of intimacy. And when Jesus did that, he was eating with people and becoming closer. The fellowship and the intimacy. Uh, some authors have described it as immediacy. I, I don't know if you know what immediacy is, but here's, here's how um, immediacy is described in the uh, communication discipline and the psych, uh, psychology discipline. Immediacy is, is a rare feeling that you have with another person. It's not with everybody. It's, it's more rare than it is common. But it's, it's, a, it's a feeling that you have where you just connect. You just click with somebody. It's that person that you can't wait to spend time with. How many of you have appointments right now in your calendar, on your phone, where you're hoping the other person doesn't show up. <laughs> okay, you don't have immediacy with those people. Okay, I don't even know if you have intimacy or fellowship, but immediacy is the one you look at and you go, you're really looking, here you go, here's another way of looking at it. Have you ever spent like two hours with somebody and it felt like 15 minutes? That's immediacy. Unlike when you spend 15 minutes with most people and it feels like two hours, Amen. See, that's the difference. Jesus has immediacy with his people. There's this feeling of connection there. And then you look at verses 4 and 5. Let me see if I can find it. There we go. And while staying with them, the disciples, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So here's his instruction. It's one word. Wait. How many of us, that's our favorite instruction? Wait. Even as kids, we know waiting stinks, okay? Are we there yet? When will this happen? What is it, 358 days to Christmas now, I think, is, is what it is? We're just, we, we hate waiting. We hate that instruction. And here, Jesus is specifically saying, you're going to have to wait for the promise of God, which I've talked about and which I'm telling you again right now that it's coming. You're going to have to practice something that we talked about last week. He said, you're going to have to practice faithful patience. You're going to have to know that God is going to deliver on this promise. And what's interesting is really he makes a reference to Luke chapter 3 there, and so we can go there to see specifically what it is that he's talking about that they are waiting for. Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 17, as the people were in expectation about the Messiah coming, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, John the Baptist, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying this, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. He's the Messiah the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with the unquenchable fire. He, he's making again the promise that the Holy Spirit is coming. And for his followers and believers, the Holy Spirit is going to fill us up and give us Power. We're going to talk about that power in a few minutes. 
But notice also that he's referencing a text where it talks about fire as well. See, we don't really like to talk about the fire very much because that's a little bit tougher. And the fire represents two things. The fire represents, first of all, the sanctifying process of becoming more like Jesus. In other words, the fact that life is hard and we need to live with faith. We need to test the gospel in our lives and and we're going to be sanctified and brought to look more and more like God's son, like Jesus. So it's the process of being purified through sanctification or it is the fire of judgment. It is the final judgment for those who do not believe. They will be thrown into the fire. We don't like that part very much. We like that saying, all dogs and humans go to heaven. We prefer that a lot more. And Jesus is very clearly saying, no, there's going to be a division. There's going to be a separation. And the Spirit's involved, and there's fire involved as well. But primarily, what they're waiting for right now in Acts is this pouring out of the Holy Spirit, which is going to come in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit is sent. And then look at verses 6 through 11, the last six verses. So when they had come together, disciples, they asked him, they said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still on this kingdom thing. And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. That cloud is representative really just of the divine presence of of God. And this idea of being lifted up and out is, is just a way of saying that heaven is somewhere else. I hope we all know that we can't just get onto a spaceship and go outside of the atmosphere and find heaven, okay? This is just a way of describing that Jesus is going somewhere else. He's going to the Father. In verse 10, And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. There's a significant Uh, piece of that that we need to unpack uh, as well. But first, let's talk about this question that they come and ask him. Is this when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? See, they're still stuck on this idea of military and political power. They will now find, with Jesus' ascension, he's gone physically He's sending the Holy Spirit. They're going to now find once for all that the deliverer that the Father God sent came to die, not to give military and political power. And this is strange to the disciples because they had been told and taught for centuries that the Messiah is going to come and give them military and political power. And they're going to be able to kick the Romans out of Jerusalem. That's what they want. They're an occupied people. They want the Romans to be kicked out, and they want it right now. It's just like you and I in our challenges. We want deliverance right now. We don't, we don't want to have to, here you go, we don't want to have to sit in our junk, in our stuff, in our challenges, in our trials, in our tribulations, in our suffering. We don't want to sit in it. The minute we go into it, we want to know when we're getting out of it and how. And why, God, aren't you taking me out of this? 
But you and I cannot become, we cannot become if we're always taken out and around every hard situation in life. That's just a fact. We don't grow unless we're taken through the fires. We don't build character uh, uh, unless we have challenges in our life. We could go around this room right now. And we could ask every single person, when did you grow the most in your life? And every one of you is going to think back to a time when you were challenged, when it was hard, when you were suffering. That's when you grow the most. Discipleship is not just about knowing things, although knowing things is important. But discipleship is not just about knowing things. It's also about the testing of our faith in obedience. That's true discipleship. You can know the whole Bible backwards and forwards, but if you haven't experienced anything, you're still not a disciple. Jesus knew stuff, but he also experienced the cross. And he experienced persecution. And he experienced ridicule. And that's what it means to be a true disciple. It's John, uh, I'm sorry, James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. He writes and he says, Consider it pure joy. When you encounter trials, testing, tribulation, suffering, challenges, temptations, when you encounter trials of various kinds, because you know the testing of your faith will produce perseverance. It'll produce endurance. It'll produce steadfastness. It'll produce patience. The testing of your faith, that's the gospel component. And that's the part where we sit in it. We sit in it and allow God to do his work. It's not that we're not doing anything. It doesn't mean that we don't have a sense of urgency or we don't have any ambition. It just means that we're relying on the power of God and his wisdom to take us through this, not out or around it. We are going to sit in it so that we can learn perseverance, steadfastness, endurance, and patience. It's Paul in Romans chapter 5. He says in verse 3, he says, you are to rejoice in your sufferings. That's crazy talk, isn't it? But Paul says rejoice in your sufferings. And you say, why? Why? Because it produces hope. And here's how. Suffering produces perseverance, he says. And that perseverance produces character. And then that character is what produces hope. It's this whole process that God, by his wisdom and his will and his love and his grace and his authority, takes us through so that we can become conformed more and more into the image of God's son. God can remove us. He can remove us if he wants. He's God. But most often he takes us through it because he knows it'll sanctify us. It'll grow our character. It'll make us better witnesses for Jesus. And it will conform us to his son. Our witness about Jesus is not so great if we never go through anything. Do you understand that? Our witness is turbocharged when we go through stuff. By the way, some of the toughest adversity, some of the toughest challenges that you and I will face is when we have great success and achievement in our lives. Do you understand that? You're like, oh, well, bring it on, man. I want challenges like that. Give me success and achievement. Let me tell you, that's one of the biggest challenges we have because that's when we begin, begin to think that we really are all that and we're really special and we really have all this power and it's not God, it's not the Holy Spirit, it's not his will, it's not his wisdom and we begin to forget about God and then he reminds us oh so subtly. I've been humbled so many times at moments when I thought I was on top of the world and it's God in his love reminding me who's really God. 
That can be one of our toughest challenges. But we also need to know, Jesus is not upset about this question. A lot of people have taught this text before saying Jesus was really mad. No, I don't think so. And the reason is because Jesus has gone through the human experience. He understands us. He understands how we feel and how we think. He gets us. That's why he's a great king and a great savior. He gets us. He understands us. He knows that we want it easy. Who doesn't? He knows that we want political power and we want status and we want marketplace. Pre- we, he knows we want all of those things. But he also knows that the disciples were broken relationally as well. You think about this. The disciples' pastors crucified their rabbi. That's what happened. And so the disciples' relationship with the, the, the religious leaders in Jerusalem was completely broken. If you've ever had a broken relationship, and all of us have, you know the disorientation and the disruption that is in life. And they're looking for restoration of relationship as well. But Jesus answers this way. I'm not going to tell you. And the reason is because you're focused on the wrong thing still. What you should be focusing on is the power that you will live by. That's what I want you to focus on. You have a purpose and you have a mission. So quit trying to assure your victory. You already have it. I defeated death. You have the victory and just start living as the people of God. That's your call. Live as the people of God. Listen, I'm all about the destination. I want to go to heaven. I'm a Philippians 1 Christian, okay? I am sure that being with Jesus in heaven is far better than down here, okay? And I can't wait. But I will tell you also that it's not just about the destination for Christians. Even more so, I think, for God, it is about the journey and us being faithfully patient and present and perseverant during this journey because it helps us to know who the Holy Spirit is that he's filled us with. We need to be faithfully patient, present, and perseverance. And, and, and Jesus says in verse 8, you are going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. In chapter 2, I think it's verses 16 and 33, uh, Peter in his sermon specifically says, the Holy Spirit has been poured out. Poured out. And that word poured out is not just a little measure for each person. That word poured out literally means overwhelmed. If you're a follower of Christ, you are overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit in your life. And that power, he says, the power that you're going to receive, it's the Greek word dunamis. And we get the English word dynamite from it. So it's the dynamite of the Holy Spirit that has been poured out on us if we are followers of Christ. So Jesus is saying, I'm not going to take you out of this world but I'm going to give you the power that you need to live as my disciples in this world. And that's true for us today as well. The disciples' triumph and our triumph is not going to be over the Roman army or over whatever enemy you and I have today, but rather our triumph is going to be to work out our salvation with fear and trembling every single day and to proclaim and live the gospel in a very dark and difficult world. That's our call. So here are some observations so far before I kind of wrap this up that you can see in this text. Jesus is alive, sitting at the right hand with the Father. That's good news. Jesus is also humbly submissive, even as God. Jesus is God, and yet he is humbly submissive to the mission, purpose, and and, and desire of the Father. 
Now, if Jesus is God and he's humbly submissive, what does that say about us and how we should behave? We should be humbly submissive. There should be some spouses elbowing each other right now. We need to practice humble submission, okay? Jesus continues to give even after his crucifixion and resurrection. He's going to give us the Holy Spirit. Jesus calls us out as his witnesses to testify to his reality, and Jesus is coming again. He's going to come again exactly as he went up. And then we get to this thing, this this whole idea of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. And it's funny because, again, Jesus says this, and there's a geographical component to it. There's Jerusalem, the city, then there's the regions or the nations of Judea and Samaria, so he's going outward, and then the end of the earth. So now the whole world, he wants the gospel proclaimed, the reality of Jesus proclaimed everywhere that we go. And we talk about this geographically, but it's more than just geographically. I found in the 20th and 21st century church world that if we only talk about this geographically, what happens, especially in American churches, is people begin to think, well, we have paid professionals to go overseas and do that, that, that mission stuff, so I don't have to worry about that. And I'm certainly not going to go to Tucson, so we'll let somebody else do that as well. So maybe I'll just take care of this little area here. And then really, we forget about taking... It just becomes a way for us to not live as we're called to live if we think about it only geographically. That's been my experience. We need to understand. Here's the first thing we need to understand about this call. Witnessing to the gospel is not just about preaching and converting. That's part of it, but it's not, that's not the totality of it. It is living faithfully in every context of life that we are in. It is all of life all for Jesus. Redemption Church has seven core values and shared culture that we live by. It's number two. All of life is all for Jesus. Everywhere we go, we integrate our faith. Whether we're at school or in the marketplace, it doesn't matter. At home, it is attaining victories over sin. It is loving the unlovable, the unlovable people right in front of you. And believe me, there's unlovable people right in front of us few little giggles there. It's being a faithful friend, a serving spouse, an honest employer, and a dedicated employee. It's a living a life that shuns foolishness and pursues the wisdom and holiness of God. It's using the gifts of service and ministry that God has given us by the power of his spirit for the benefit of others, not to our glory and to exalt ourselves. So here you go. Think of Jerusalem this way. Jerusalem is your family and your closest friends. That's Jerusalem. You need to be a gospel-centered person in your family and to your roommates and to your best friends. Uh, research, again, in the areas of psychology and communication show that the people that we treat with the less deference, the least amount of deference, generally tend to be the people closest to us. We treat the food server really well, and then we growl at our family members sitting across the table from us. We, we treat people we don't know way better than we treat people closest to us. Th that's a gospel issue. That's a heart issue, and we need to work on that. So think of Jerusalem as your family, your roommates, your inner circle of friends. Here you go. Think of Judea and Samaria as the places that we frequent on a regular basis, sometimes every single day. Think of it as your workplace or going to school 
or for some of you, the gym, LA Fitness, or for still others of you, Matt's Big Breakfast, Be the Gospel in Matt's Big Breakfast, or Harkins Theater, like I like to go there, have gospel-centered popcorn. <laughs> we, you didn't know there was such a thing. Listen, we are called to be a faithful presence where we go. And then the ends of the earth. Here's the, here's, this is the one that I think is the biggest. We don't have to go to the world anymore. You don't have to worry about going overseas or to Tucson. You don't have to worry about that anymore because God has brought the world to us. Have you noticed that? God has brought the world to us. We have refugees from all over the world, Africa, the Middle East, Central America, living in Arcadia within a mile of this property. And they need the gospel. We have ex-cons, people who have been in prison, living in this neighborhood, some of them attend Redemption Arcadia. We have ex-cons in Redemption Arcadia. We minister at Alongside Ministries as well. There are immigrants all over this town. Central America, Asia, Europe, you name it. All over this town. People created in God's image who need the gospel. God is bringing the world to us. Here you go. Maybe even more than those. You're like, yeah, yeah. Okay, here you go. Now I'm really going to challenge you. Right here in this assembly, in this room, right here, we have Republicans and Democrats. Are you going to love each other? <laughs> Nervous laughter every time. It is so true what Russell Moore says. Politics has become the biggest false god in America today. I'll love you if you look different, act different, speak different. But I'll tell you what. If you voted for the Donald or you voted for, for Hillary, you're going straight to hell. Are we going to love each other politically? Are we? Or are we going to flame each other on Facebook? How many converts have you guys made flaming people on Facebook, by the way? How's that working as a strategy for you? You see what I'm saying? It's an issue of the heart. It's an issue of love. Even Republicans and Democrats have been made in the image of God. And we need to remember that. And they need the gospel. And we need to be good witnesses of the gospel. The question is, how can we be a blessing to those who are different than us, who live in our space? Because there's a lot of them living in our space. That's the ends of the earth. And they're right next to us. The ends of the earth are sitting right here in the pews in our church. They're shopping in the stores that we shop in. They're eating in the restaurants that we eat in. They're living down the street and even next door. Some of you have them living in your home. Good for you. Good for you. You and I cannot change the world, but we can serve our world and be an influence with our people. We need God, and we need God first. We need the Holy Spirit first, not as an afterthought. I am, I am so tired of being in church meetings where somebody will eventually say, well, we've done everything we can do. Might as well pray now. No, we need to pray first. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to be involved from the very, very beginning. I, I've really found, I think, and I said it all through this, this message already this morning, that applicationally, acts can be summed up with the three Ps. Faithful patience, Faithful patience. We still live with urgency and with ambition, but we do it with a heart that is resting in the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're not anxious. We are urgent without being anxious. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. Faithful patience. Faithful presence. Faithful presence. Part of that is just being available. 
You can have a ministry of availability. You can have a ministry of sitting in it with other people who have been called to sit in it. So faithful presence and then faithful perseverance, faithful steadfastness, faithful endurance, faithful perseverance, hanging in there, knowing that Jesus has the last say in every situation. Um, My wife, she's not in this service. She was embarrassed in the first service, and I'll probably hear about it this afternoon, but I, I can say this with great confidence. She's a really good volleyball coach. She's won three state championships at the high school level. She's taken several club teams to to nationals. She's a really good volleyball coach. And she knows volleyball. Surprise, surprise. But one of the things she knows about volleyball is no matter how good a team is, whatever team it is, no matter how good a team is, that team is always going to hit a rough stretch. That team is always going to get kind of stuck in the mud. That team is always going to have a hard time during certain matches and certain stretches of a season. You guys know this, right? Their daughter plays uh, Division I volleyball. So you know this. They could be doing great and then suddenly hit something. Jackie has one word and, and one ideology for that moment when it gets tough. She just says, plow, plow, plow. You need to be a steady plotter. You're not a racehorse right now. Sometimes you can be a racehorse, but right now what you need to be is a steady plotter, just somebody who's just inching forward. Keep plowing. Keep your head up and keep plowing. Plow. During her last state championship match, they were down two games to none, and and all the parents uh, started yelling, plow, 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 plow. They came back and won that that championship, three games to two, it was amazing. I'm not saying it was, I think it was God, but we plowed, all right? But that's the idea, faithful perseverance. We need to be faithful and long-suffering. Tom Schrader says this all the time, and I think it's true. You and I always overestimate what we can do in a day, but we underestimate what we can do in a decade, right? We need to remember that. Let me wrap up with these two men at the end. They were angels. They were angels. And they had come out just when the disciples needed them to affirm what had just happened and to assure them what was going to happen. Say, hey, he's going to come back. The second coming is going to be just like uh, his ascension, only in reverse. So we know that this is going to happen. But the reason they were there to do this is because the language of the Greek there is really interesting. That idea of gazing at Jesus, that verb there carries with it the weight of a sense of disappointment and loss. So in other words, they weren't standing there going, oh, wow. They were standing there going, oh, we're lost. There he goes. That's it. And the angels came by to say, no, 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 no. Be faithful. He's coming again. And the promise is coming as well, the Holy Spirit. But until then, you need patience. You need presence. You need perseverance. You need this power, this dunamis the power of the gospel. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, this is really the thesis of his entire letter to the, chapter, to the uh, church in Rome, verses 16 and 17. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation, the power of God for salvation, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Here's what Paul is saying. 
The power of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of Jesus is not just for salvation, it's also for sanctification. It's for living. Those of us who are followers of Christ and who have been baptized, and we know baptism symbolizes the forgiveness of sin and then the new life that we're to live. We love that part about the forgiveness of sin, but that forgiveness of sin doesn't mean anything unless we pop up back up out of that water and, and we are a new creation, a newness of life. That's the power of the gospel. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, and now we're alive. Let me ask you something. How much power does a dead person have? Not a trick question. Come on, wake up. None, none. I can never talk about this without thinking about The Princess Bride. Have you seen that movie? Okay, remember Miracle Max? And they bring Wesley to Miracle Max. He's dead. What can you do? What is Miracle Max? He examines him, and what does he say? He's not all the way dead. He's mostly dead, but he's partly alive. Listen, that's not the gospel. The gospel is we are dead in our trespasses and sin. We have no power, but the Holy Spirit comes and fills us because of the grace, love, and mercy of Jesus Christ by the power's authority and will, by the, by the Father's authority and will comes and fills us and makes us alive. It's the power for salvation and the power to live. That's what we are called to, church, and that's what we're going to be looking at in the book of Acts. Let me pray. And we'll move on. Lord God, we thank you for this truth. And we just pray uh, that you would fill us again, that you would overpower us with your spirit, and that we would be your people, living out your truths and being your witnesses uh, to our friends and our family in the places that we frequent on a regular basis and to the world that is coming to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.